Good morning, New Valley. Today, the passage is from Matthew 22, 8 through 13. Then the king said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man was there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever tried to describe to somebody what something tastes like when they have never eaten that thing? Like, I had a friend who hadn't eaten fish. I was trying to describe it, and it's really difficult. It tastes fishy, and that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to describe something to the crowds, to the disciples, something that they have never experienced, and that thing is the kingdom of heaven. And so he's telling them stories, trying to get his point across. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's buried. And the kingdom of heaven is like seeds that a man scattered. Or on this occasion, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast that a king is throwing for his son. Now, there's a really mind-bending aspect to the kingdom of heaven that if we can get our head around, if we can, It helps clarify a lot of it, and that's that the kingdom of heaven is both now and not yet. See, Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is kind of confusing for us because, one, we think of heaven as the place we go when we die. It's on some other plane of existence. How can Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And not only that, when we look around, we see this is not how I imagined heaven. There's sickness, there's violence and hate, and there's death. That can't be right. And in a sense, you're right, because the kingdom of heaven is now, and it's not yet fully. There, there won't be the fullness of the kingdom of heaven until King Jesus returns a second time, till he comes back and he inaugurates the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. See, he inaugurated originally 2,000 years ago. The kingdom of heaven is at hand when he came the first time, and then one day when he returns in the future, it will be here in its fullness. So the kingdom of heaven is now and not yet, and we who are living in this gap of this in-between time, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are called the church. And a silver lining to this time right now, while we can't gather as a church, is that you can't answer the question, what is the church and what is it for, with the answer, It's the place we go on Sunday to worship, because it's not currently true. But according to the words of Jesus, that was never true. He never described the church as the building we go to to worship. The the church is the group of people who are submitted to King Jesus, who live as if Jesus is the king of the universe, and they're living out this faith, and that is the, the truth. They understand that the kingdom of heaven is now and not yet. And as they live out this faith, that makes the church a light in darkness. That makes the church a, a kingdom for exiles and a family for orphans, a, a community for the lost. 
for the lonely. And today we highlight that the church is a table in the wilderness. Now, if you hired God as a travel agent, I don't know if you've ever used a travel agent, but if you hired God as a travel agent, I can guarantee you, you would fire him. You would say, God, I want a trip to the promised land. Can you arrange that for me? And God would say, yes, absolutely. And then he'd book you a trip into the wilderness. Here you are. Now let me explain the picture you're seeing. See, this week, Scott and I got up to a little promised land called Christopher Creek. That's about two hours north of here. And we set off from home towards this land of, that, that flows with milk and honey. We set off from home, but we had to stop and go through this wilderness here. And because of the triple-digit heat and because of the fires that have been happening out near Four Peaks, it literally looked and felt like a, a scorched hellscape. We had to go through the wilderness. And for those of us who have never had to live in a literal wilderness, this, this, this illustration and metaphor might be disconnected. So take a moment. Imagine that you had to live in the wilderness. I mean, we do live in the desert, but I have never personally had to survive in the desert without all the modern access that the 21st century provides. Imagine living in this wilderness without grocery stores, without shelters, without Chick-fil-A, it, if there's a Chick-fil-A around, this should be a rule of thumb. Then you're not really in a literal wilderness, right? So for us, this, this might not connect. But in ancient times, the wilderness, if you're outside the village, if you're outside the city, the wilderness meant struggle. The wilderness meant danger and despair. It meant pain and hunger and thirst. And just surviving is a struggle. Yet strangely... God leads those who he loves into the wilderness. We see it time and time again in Scripture. Israel, his treasured people, led into the wilderness. Jesus, the beloved son, led into the wilderness. And you and me, into the wilderness. Do you feel like you're in a wilderness? Not a physical one, a spiritual one. Do you have a thirst that water can't satisfy or, or hunger that all the plans of your life, your goals, your dreams, that they can't satisfy? Do you, do you sense a dryness in your soul? That is part of being in the wilderness. What is your wilderness? Maybe, maybe right now your, your wilderness is, is a loss of something. It's an event, a loss of a job, a loss of your health, a, a loss of the sense of control you had over your life. Or, or maybe your wilderness is a whole slew of things that just makes life feel like a struggle to survive, that it's, that it's hard just to bear the crushing burden and stresses and demands that life has. I want you to actually think about that. Ask God, what, what is the wilderness? What is the challenge? What is the pain? What is the set of challenges, maybe, that God is putting you through? And I, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit brings something to the forefront of your mind, because God wants to speak to that today. Whatever it is, we all have thorns and thistles on our spiritual path. We have serpents and scorpions, just like the Israelites in the wilderness. And just like the Israelites, we grumble, God, why? Why did you bring us here? Why did you bring me to the wilderness? I want to go to the promised land. 
And God brings us into the wilderness for the same reason he brings the Israelites into the wilderness. I want you to look with me at these incredible words from Deuteronomy 8 because it answers the question, why does God not only allow us to go into the wilderness, but he actually ordains it? Why? Deuteronomy 8, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 15, God led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, that he might humble you and test you and to do you good in the end. If you zoned out, hopefully you caught that last part. To do them good. Why does God lead Israel into the wilderness? To do them good. Why does God lead you and me to the wilderness? To do us good. Hebrews 12 tells us that discipline is unpleasant. It's painful while you're experiencing it. But those who are trained by discipline, those who have good training from pain, are blessed by it. So what is the good training that comes from being in the wilderness? What is it? The pain of the wilderness makes us desperate. And in our desperation, we seek God. I want you to repeat this cringy but very true sentence after me. Our despair makes us aware of our need for God's care. Come on, say it with me. Our despair makes us aware of our need for God's care. And that is the blessing, that we see that we need God. Regina Spector has a song about this hotel, this, this luxurious resort that is actually a gateway to hell. But the guests don't care because the luxuries are so enticing. The silver's real, the liquor's top shelf, and and as you play tennis and swim in the pool, you won't care that the devil is near. You, You won't care that destruction is crouching at the door. And the blessing of the wilderness is that you do care. You know you need God's provision. You know you need his help. So if you are in a wilderness, that is not a punishment from God. It's actually proof that he loves you, that he cares for you enough, that he would discipline you like a son, like a daughter, and call you back to himself. We need the care of God. But who is worthy of it, really? Who, who should be invited to sit and feast with the king? Is there anybody worthy? And, and actually, this parable that Jesus tells is told again in Luke 14. And in this occasion, it, it tells us why. Jesus is responding to somebody who he's sitting at the table with. Luke 14, 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now this person is making a wise statement. He's right. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. But you have to wonder what kind of person 
this man had in mind when he said that. He is probably thinking like you and I naturally do, that there are some people who are worthy to be invited to the king's feast. And if you are worthy, then, wow, you are one of the blessed ones. And, and obviously, those people are the ones that are really rich. Those are the successful people. Those are the people that are good-looking and well-dressed. Those are the people that have people serving them, and they're admired by crowds. But based on Jesus' response, that's not true. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And so this is a shocking juxtaposition. Why are the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, why are those the ones that are blessed, the ones that have struggled for survival their whole life? Because they have the good training that comes from being in the wilderness. They're desperate, and their despair makes them aware of their need for God's care. Yet this parable is is still too abstract. So let's bring some concrete specifics to this. What What is the feast? What is there to eat? What meal, what food and drink is there for me to nourish my hungry soul on? And all the Sunday school kids should know this answer, right? In one sense, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the feast. In John 6, Jesus says this himself. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And this is a metaphor for saving faith. Unless you have saving faith, unless you believe Jesus is God, unless you believe that he died for your sins on the cross and he rose again and now he's your Savior, your King and your Lord, then you have no life in you. This is a meal that nourishes the soul. And in another sense, the feast that nourishes us is us as the people of God. It's the church, the hands and feet of God, the hands and feet of Jesus. See, we're called to have the mind of Christ. We're called to be Christ-like. We're called to know and follow Jesus in such a way that we could improvise how he would respond in the situation we're in. So we are the feast as well. The church is. And Each of these deserve their own sermon series, but I'm going to quickly go through five meals, five soul-nourishing meals that we find in and through the church, the people of God. Number one, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only way it's possible for us to feast on Jesus because it is the indwelling Holy Spirit that reveals the person and work of Christ and empowers us to improvise what Jesus would do in the situation we're in. Number two, the word. Remember what true food is, according to Deuteronomy 8.3. True food. It's man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And when we open scripture, we, God opens his mouth, and we have a meal to feast on. We find this in, in and through the church. Number three, fellowship. And Gray hit this powerfully last week. We, when we share our lives together, our souls are nourished. Number four, confession and repentance. I, and I'm not talking about just on Sunday morning service when we confess. I'm talking about personal confession in our daily lives, in our families, in our small groups. We should be 
personally confessing our sins and our struggles. See, in the wilderness of the world, we're told never show weakness. But at the, the table of the church, we, we can openly confess and turn, repent, turn back to the gospel and have the gospel nourish our souls. Confession and repentance. And lastly, this may be the most obvious spiritual meal of all, the Lord's Supper. We find this in and through the church. There's plenty of food. There's plenty to eat. So come and feast in and through the church. I want to draw your attention to the warnings inherent in this parable. The first warning is, is one that you suspect. The king, he, he has his feast ready. So he tells people, he invites people, the feast is ready. The steak is ready. Come and feast. Come. And slowly, people give their responses, their regrets as the RSVP. It's like, oh, I actually have this stuff I need to do at home. There's a few things I need to work on. Or, or I have this business meeting. I'm not going to make it tonight. My, my son's baseball game is happening. Or, ooh, are any of my friends going to go? Because then I don't really want to be there. And obviously, I'm wildly paraphrasing. But hear the warning. There are many good opportunities. There are many good opportunities, but the greatest good is to feast with the king. Don't miss this invitation. Come to the feast. What lesser goods are you settling for? Come to the feast. And then the second warning is perhaps even more unsettling than the first one. Look with me again at verses 11 and 12. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friends? The man was speechless. Now you may be thinking, well, he just came in off the street because they said, he, the king said, go get anybody who will come. How can you expect this person off the street to wear the proper attire? And that's a fair question, but Jesus' listeners would know that when a king or someone of high ranking invited people to a banquet, they would also provide a festal garment, most likely a robe, as they entered. And so this man who came in and was not wearing the, the wedding clothing, the wedding garment, this robe, he must have refused the king's gift at the entry. And so what's the king's response? The king says, tie him up and throw him into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the warning. You can partake in all kinds of church activities. You can take communion. You can read scripture. You can be part of a small group. You can do all kinds of social justice, good works. You can come to church gatherings. But you're not truly part of the church until you confess that until you confess that your absolute best works are nothing but filthy rags and you need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He's offering the free gift at the door. Accept it. Accept the free gift and stop stop trying to prove yourself. Take heed of this terrifying warning while there's time. Could you imagine Jesus coming to you and saying, why are you wearing that? 
Why do you insist on your own way, on your own righteousness, when I'm offering you mine? I don't know you. You, you get out of here. Take the invite. Take the wedding garment. Take Christ's righteousness. And, I, and I'll close with this. I encourage you to come to the table. There's room for you at the table. There's room for you to feast. Accept that your best is filthy rags. And, and accept Christ's righteousness on your behalf. There, that's a meal in itself. And as we feast with God, we see his, his loyal love, his goodness, and his mercy. We grow and we become a feast for each other too. That is the church. We are a table in the wilderness. And until the king returns and ushers in the fullness of his promised land, we have these good meals to nourish our souls on. Feast. Pray with me. God, we cry out to you from the wilderness. We are keenly aware of the not yet of your kingdom. So Lord, in our hunger and thirst, would you make us more aware of the now? God, would you transform our hearts to uh, feast on your goodness, to feast on your righteousness? In this time where we can't gather together, Lord, would you encourage us through the means that you have given us? Through, through the virtual gatherings, through the small group gatherings. Jesus, thank you for access to the feast. Help us to have your mind to improvise how you would have us live. And help us to trust not in our righteousness, but in yours. It's in your name we pray, King Jesus. God's people said, amen.